0: Retirement Blues Goodbye Along writes Coast-to-Coast Path A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 5 Episode 1 A quote relevant to Chapter 5 by Dylan Thomas From Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night Do not go gentle into that good night Old age should burn and rave at close of day Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Grasmere to Patterdale. Ten miles. Guidebook walking time, three and a half hours. Peter and Richard's walking time, five to six hours. I once owned an eleven-foot caravan, which was a fixture at the Thankful Rest Caravan Park, alongside one of Australia's most unspoiled beaches. Even though the caravan's living space was extremely small, the layout and facilities worked as well as those of a small, comfortable bed-sitter. My attic room in Grafsmere and the caravan were of similar floor area, but that's about as far as the comparison goes. Coping with the protruding roof beams and the overall awkwardness of the attic called for youthful flexibility mixed with a dash of kiwi make-do-and-mend ingenuity. Boiling water to make tea was a precarious and dangerous undertaking. The kettle had to be balanced on an upended drawer so that the electrical flex could reach the power socket, which was halfway up the wall. I tried to catch the weather forecast on television, but was assailed by the stultifying banality of an early morning news program, on which two slick presenters, sitting side on to the camera, regurgitated the same depressing bilge ad nauseum. If the news was sad they feigned compassion. When light-hearted, laughter floated through the ether. If some atrocity was being reported, they level-eyed one another in shock. I hit the off-button and looked outside to see what the heavens foretold. From the dorm window, the day appeared to be wet and grey. Overnight, the cheery village had lost its charm and taken on an off-season shabbiness that can engulf a holiday resort in dismal weather throughout breakfast we were kept in line by a prickly bullet-headed man with wide-spaced staring eyes. Whilst serving, he delivered a detailed commentary on the history of the guest-house, an establishment of which he bristled with pride. The selection of food caught the traditional style of the place, being stewed dried fruit, followed by a robust fry-up. As usual, our fellow diners were a mixed bag. The most eye-catching were the well-matched American couple who had purloined the bright window table. She read the newspaper, while he concentrated on a handheld electronic gadget. Both were large people with big 1960s hair and overstuffed backsides that ballooned over the edges of their seats. Their enormous mopped hair made their heads appear too large for their stubby, well-rounded bodies. Whilst breakfast was being served, the couple enlivened the room with comical tales of their holiday so far. Unlikely as it may seem, they were in England on a cycling holiday, and were about to challenge the mountainous Lake District roads. They were a feisty pair, and I admired their spirit of adventure. That morning we prepared for the wet, as all indicators suggested rain was waiting for us on the hilltops. To be on the safe side, we sealed all essential gear in waterproof bags. I protected my digital camera inside two sealable plastic sandwich bags. The bags providing double thickness waterproofing, whilst the air trap between the skins gave additional cushioning against impact damage. Spare clothes and socks were kept dry in plastic shopping bags tied with a knot. Trussed up like Arctic explorers, we rejoined the trail near the youth hostel where our Dutch friends had bunked down. Colleen, ever faithful to her nature, performed her mother hen ritual by checking we had our essential supplies before allowing us to set off on the trail to Patterdale. The cool damp air was alive with the powdery drift of wet moss and the mouldering relish of leaf litter. The hushed landscape was wet and still, under a weightless cloak of drifting light, which left birdsong tentative and subdued. The quiet intimacy of the place made me feel welcome and pleased to be part of it, not just passing through. When I was employed, it took all of three weeks' holiday before work-related issues stopped invading my thoughts. Even now, Several years after retirement, unresolved problems from my former work still spring to mind, leaving me frustrated and annoyed. That morning, however, things were very different. Work was not an issue. I experienced a almost light-headed sense of freedom and grew stronger with each step away from the day before. There was almost a palpable sense of letting go, and living in the moment, and allowing the day to take care of itself. At long last, retirement's release was paying dividends. The debilitating bird's nest tangle of workplace baggage, which I'd been holding on to with white knuckled determination, was starting to unravel. The guidebook suggested it would take three and a half hours to trek between Grasmere and Patterdale. The limited experience we'd gained over the past few days suggested it would take Peter and me about six hours we tended to stroll, not rush, stopping frequently, to wonder at our surroundings, and to ponder why things are the way they are. I was surprised at the number of trekkers who race ahead, heedless of the warning pen by the Welsh supertramp poet William Henry Davis, who, in his poem Leisure, wrote, What is this life, if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare, No time to stand beneath the boughs and stare as long as sheep and cows. With our hectic, asset-rich, but time-poor 21st century existence, such wistful Edwardian sentiments still remain pertinent and compelling. There are two trails on wet-tongue rise, and yet again the weather conditions robbed us of choice. A thick mist hung low across the fells, forcing us to take the safer lower track, the path follows the fast-flowing waters of Tung Gill up a thousand-foot climb to Hawes Gap. Well before we began the arduous ascent, the air became chilled and humid, the breeze strong and blustery, and the sky dark and low. Mother Nature was being generous with her warnings, and we were able to don our waterproofs and woollen headgear before the rain arrived. The first hint of change was the choppy breeze, which amused itself by tugging us to and fro unlike the furtive mist that caressed the cheeks the storm's calling card was a shotgun blast of icy droplets full in the face we were soon lurching through lashing horizontal squalls that transformed the rough paved track into slippery rivulets that made climbing treacherous and difficult high on the path ahead an ungainly figure stood motionless in the rain he shuffled on then stopped and looked back as though waiting for us to catch up before stumbling onward again Against the bleak mountainside, he appeared a dejected and forlorn soul, whose movements were clumsy, laboured, and unsteady. His waterproof clothing appeared several sizes too large, and he tottered under the weight of a heavy backpack. His overall demeanour was most curious—a picture of wretchedness battling the mountainside in the chilly mist and rain. On an exposed ridge, I came face to face with the doddering codger the pathetic fellow was crouching in a rocky niche alongside the track. Although he was suffering the full force of the lashing rain, the pitiable figure appeared oblivious to his precarious situation. The most telling sign that all was not well was the thick cord of greenish-yellow snot that dangled from his nostrils to his chest. In the gusty conditions, this grotesque adornment flicked wildly about like an erratic pendulum. With the exception of his head, on which he wore a rather jaunty tweed cap, the old gentleman was well decked out in heavy weather gear. Apart from his clothes, everything about his appearance suggested he shouldn't have been on that exposed, wind-swept mountainside. Are you all right to go on? I inquired, thinking it might be better if he backtracked to Grasmere rather than continue the longer and more gruelling trek to Patterdale. Fine, thanks he replied, looking up from under the peak of his cap and wiping his nose. "'Just taking a breather. Walk with us for a bit,' I proposed, as it seemed both irresponsible and uncharitable to leave him on his own. As we climbed higher, I couldn't help but notice his peculiar stylized gait. He rolled his body to the side to take the weight on one leg thus allowing the opposite thigh to be thrust forward, flicking the lower leg and foot forward in readiness for the next step. In those harsh conditions, crossing rough stony ground, covered in water, his ungainly manner was a spectacle not easily forgotten. Strange though his movements were, there was something oddly familiar about them. Then it dawned on me. He affected a similar style of movement to Douglas Bader, the legless battle of Britain fighter ace, from that moment onwards, I was convinced our tottering companion was attempting to cross the Lake District mountain tops on artificial tin legs. This path's a bit rough, I suggested, watching him more closely. It's good to be in the open air, he replied, even if it's blowing a gale. How do you like my lightweight walking pole? I inquired, having noticed he was carrying a wooden walking stick that protruded from his backpack. "'Can't stand em, he slammed. "'Isn't it marvellous the things they can do with aluminium and tin these days?' I suggested, marshalling as much subtlety as the conditions permitted. "'Earlier this morning, the American tried to help me ford a stream,' he replied, ignoring my probe. "'Quite naturally, I shunned his offer, and waded straight through the water, shouting—' This is the English way of doing things. I took his reply to be a tactful warning that I was being too intrusive and should back off. I got the uncomfortable feeling of having adopted a stray more eccentric than his earlier behaviour had suggested. At one point, the path crossed a narrow, fast-flowing stream that gushed into Tung Gill. The water posed no barrier, as there was a large stepping stone in the middle of the stream. I crossed first. One step onto the stone, the next step onto the far bank. At the very moment Peter was preparing to step across the stream, two additional walkers arrived crowding in behind him and creating a tight knot of congestion on the narrow path. Disconcerted, Peter stepped onto the stone to get clear of those crushing him behind. In his haste, he became unbalanced and tumbled sideways. In an effort to regain balance and avoid falling into the water, Peter used his adjustable walking pole to brace himself against the stream bed. I looked on in fascination and horror at what happened next. Under the sudden load of extra weight, his walking stick collapsed in on itself, causing Peter to topple towards the water in slow motion. Panic set in, and by wildly thrashing his arms about and throwing himself forward, he was able to slump onto the far bank, leaving what appeared to be the lower half of his body under water. Peter clambered onto the bank and stood stock still and silent. He was shaken, cold and wet, and embarrassed by the fall. I think mostly he was extremely annoyed with himself for not having been more careful. He squelched past me along the path for a short distance, then sat on a rock to appraise the situation. In the mist and rain, he made a wretched sight, sitting bolt upright and perfectly still. It was only by the merest chance that catastrophe had been avoided. Peter was lucky not to have been completely immersed, or to have suffered a nasty head injury from the jagged rock outcrops near where he fell. When he examined the extent of the damage, it became clear that his legs and feet had got wet, his camera, rucksack, and the upper body clothing were dry. Suddenly, the bizarre antics of our elderly companion captured my attention. In a defiant act of independence, the old gentleman demonstrated his English style of crossing a stream. He sat on the far bank, and gingerly lowered himself into the freezing water. He waded through the stream, then crawled up the opposite bank on all fours, as water poured from his sodden trousers and waterlogged boots. His apparent disregard for the state of his legs and feet convinced me that my initial analysis was correct. The old-timer had shares in a company making tin prosthesis and was proving the versatility of the metal under trying conditions at varying altitudes. After all, who in their right mind would choose to walk across miles of bleak mountainside wearing sudden socks and trousers? Only those immune to the consequences. Trekkers fitted with artificial legs and tin feet. He lurched past me to join Peter sitting on a rock. From the moment you shifted your weight onto that lightweight walking-stick, I knew you were done for. Old Tin Legs added, with just a hint of glee evident in his tone. Even at a distance of ten feet, I felt the flash of angry heat radiate from Peter's face. I think it can be stated with a degree of certainty that had there been no witnesses, Peter, a man of placid and peaceable disposition, may well have punched the old fool on his intrusive snotty nose. However, Peter dug deep into his reserves of stoic forbearance, and our aged, tin-legged, water-loving chump survived unscathed. The couple, whose inappropriate arrival provoked Peter's ill-considered haste, made easy weather of the crossing. They commiserated with Peter on his bad luck, before continuing up the mountainside to fade from sight into the greyness.